welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. Now, so far in this series, we've interviewed some big names from the race's past and potentially the future, but it's always nice to get a very honest take of what it was like to step on board your first Volvo Ocean race. So this week I was joined by Emily Nagel, one of the youngest competitors in the history of the race, and what an addition she experienced. All the drama with Team Axon Abel at the beginning, of course that knockdown in the Southern Ocean and them taking that record-breaking 24-hour run. If you enjoy this interview series, subscribe for more updates, leave us a like, and of course in the comments, we're always taking suggestions as to who we should interview next. Enjoy. Emily Nagel is one of only two competitors in the last edition of the race that was under 24 years of age. One of the youngest sailors that we've had in the history of the race. And along with Team Axon Abel, currently holds the record for the furthest mile sailed in 24 hours. Not only in the VO65, but in the race's history. And of course, she wrapped up the last edition, finishing fourth on board with that boat. Now, that's not a bad start to anybody's ocean race career. But for Emily Nagel, it's not just about the sailing as well. Relying on her naval architecture degree, she's moved into data analysis, cutting through the fog of sailing to reveal the scientific numbers underneath and to help boats get that little bit of an edge. Now, Emily, thank you very much for for joining me. I think it's fair to say that comparatively, you've come a long way in a short period of time for for most sailors. I mean, you're still pretty young. What was it like? Let me take you back to that very first uh, race village in Alicante, the start of the last edition. What was it like being on the other side of the barrier, the fans, the crowd, the noise on one side? And here you are at a major regatta and you are one of the stars. Hey Niall, uh, thank, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, that arriving in Alicante and first getting that little glimpse of what it's like to be on the other side was pretty insane, um, like <laughs> terrifying and exciting, but like, nothing that I expected. I mean, I remember walking to the race village one morning uh, with Martin and just looking over and they just had a full of banners and there was one of me and Simeon grinding and I was just there like, why is my face up there? Like, surrounded by all of these incredible legends of the sport like guys that I'd looked up to for years and that was my face it was just a bit of a shock really and and I want to get to how you got there but let me just ask you do you feel do you feel like an ocean racer now do you feel like your name should be up there or does it still feel like you're kind of you know walking in a dream I'd say it still feels kind of like walking in a dream most of the time I mean I've definitely learned a lot and come a long way, but I still look up to these guys who have done, you know, five races and have got so much experience. And I, I still just felt so lucky to be there during the race, let alone, I don't know, I don't think I could ever see myself as one of the legends the way that you know, these guys are. Well, well, I'm sure that there's still some more to come and I'm, I'm sure that luck has played its part, but there was an awful lot of work that you were doing behind the scenes. So let's wind the clock back. Um, I think you've got to go back to Team BDA in Bermuda. This is training for the Youth America's Cup. So you're out there. Bermuda's where you're born. And being there in the right place at the right time is probably the right way to describe it because I'm imagining at that time, just before the America's Cup, I mean, there were a lot of greats coming through the doors. You know, you were in a, 
a quite a circus at that moment. It was pretty crazy to be back in Bermuda. I mean, like I'd gone away to boarding school and university in the UK and didn't really have any plans of moving back to Bermuda, just career wise. It's, there's no engineering. There's not a huge amount of sailing. And then they announced that not only was the cup going to be in Bermuda, but there'd be a youth America's cup and Bermuda would have a team. So you know, I spent my last year of university focusing a little bit too much on that and trying to earn a spot in that team. Um, and then it's literally a couple of days after my last exams, I flew back to Bermuda and uh, joined team BDA. We were training kind of the whole time, but having that naval architecture and I just, I wanted to be involved in a real cup team. Um, being part of the youth AC was awesome. I mean, we were getting to train in NACRAs and GC32s and just incredible boats that I'd never had the opportunity to sail and probably never would have had that opportunity if I'd been in the UK. Um, so that was just crazy in itself. But with the actual cup there, I mean, all of these guys that, you know, I'd kind of grown up watching Match Race during the Bermuda Gold Cup and, you know, seen on TV in the last cup and followed, they were all just there. Um, so I kind of made it my personal mission to you know, work with one of the teams. I didn't care what it was doing. I mean, the dream was to be involved with the design and actively involved, but I would have been happy at that point, you know, just sweeping the floors and uh, ultimately I managed to get an internship with SoftBank and that was just a mix of everything from you know, working with the design team to also helping out the shore boys get the boat ready every day and just incredible learning curve and getting to meet all of these incredible designers and sailors and boat builders. It's a whole world of kind of professional sailing. And this is where um, it kind of, it got you into the room with the right person, Simeon. So SoftBank at Team Japan, already there's, you know, I'm imagining there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of intensity there, but am I right in saying that you always had a little bit of an eye on the ocean race and trying to do it and you weren't you weren't wasting your time you know you you were bu building up your fitness your skills and all the rest of it so that if the right opportunity came along you might just be able to grab it yeah i mean you could say i'd always been a little bit obsessed with sailing and the idea of sailing around the world um i mean ellen MacArthur was like my biggest hero when i was 10 um and I just, I wanted to do that, but I kind of put that off for years to focus on the engineering and, you know, a real career. And I'd kind of been taught like from you know, my schooling that you know, sailing was a hobby and you have your career. Um, and then just being a Bermuda was kind of like that light switch that it's like, ah, oh, it doesn't have to be separate. It could be combined. And I just started focusing more on like getting the miles into my belt. I was lucky enough to do like this awesome project with Red Bull. Oh yeah, the like, the, the F4. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool and surreal. Just going from New York to Bermuda on this foiling cat with uh, Jimmy Spittle and Shannon Falcone and Rome Kirby, and just hearing their stories from like their offshore history. I mean, they've got Volvos behind them, plenty of Sydney Hobarts. It's just like that kind of spark that's like, you know what, this is, this is actually doable. Like it's not as far out of reach as I'd always kind of imagined it to be. Um, and that was around the same time as the rule 
encouraging more girls to be involved was introduced. Right. So, 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 so this is the rule that essentially it doesn't say that you have to have female sailors on board or indeed if you're an all female team, you have to have male sailors on board. But there's an incentive if you do. There's a limit for the amount of sailors you can have. If you want to go above that limit, they have to be of the opposite gender. Exactly. And at that time, like I'd been talking to loads of the guys at SoftBank about it and to these guys while we were offshore. And at that point, everyone was still quite hesitant. Like, they're not really going to take two girls on every boat, are they? Like, they'll probably do an all-girls team again. But, you know, there was a couple of characters in there who'd be like, well, actually, you know, they, they do get two extra pairs of hands on the boat, so it kind of seems smart. And there was definitely a lot of debate about it, but it was kind of my point where I was like, you know what, I want to do this. It might not be this edition. Like, let's focus on just getting strong, learning more skills, and just figuring out, like, how to get there. So I focused a lot on the gym side, um, kind of from coming back from university um, to join Team BDA, I'd already had to start putting on a lot of muscle to be able to sell the GC32. Um, and pretty much over the course of eight months, my coach got me to put on six, seven kilos, um, which was pretty intense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it kind of put me in the spot where I was suddenly able to, you know, lift a lot more weights and I was spending a lot of time grinding in the gym, kind of, my favorite thing to do would be to like, I'd come in in the morning before work and just look at the board at what the guys had been doing the day before for their grinding workout and I'd adapt it and try and make it work. Um, and just over time kind of built that up and the guys started to see I was quite serious about it. And then Simeon joined the team in March, just before the cup. And at first I was too scared to speak to him. Um, of well, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. That, that one took about a week to build up the confidence to actually talk to the guy, um, which in hindsight is pretty stupid because he's like one of the friendliest guys around to talk to. And once he starts talking, he doesn't really stop, um, <laughs> which anyone who knows Simeon will agree with. Um, he's a great guy and like that's why we got on so well. Um, and yeah, it just kind of went for that. I don't think he realized I was serious about the ocean race for a couple of months. Uh, the, the other guys at SoftBank would kind of like make hints at him like, oh, you should take her for a trial. Um, and I think he always saw that as joking, but then kind of about four months into me asking questions nonstop about, you know, what do you have to do, skills, skills wise, you know, like how many people do you have in a shore team and what sort of backgrounds are you looking for? He went, just asked me to come for a sale and, as soon as the cup ended, I flew out. And, and I mean, at that point where he asked you um, to come for a sale, at that point where you finally plucked up the courage to talk to him, had you got good at that point of um, acting cool? Had you been able to master the ability to say, yeah, a bit of Volvo, or were you still that sort of, you know, bright-eyed about it whenever you spoke about it? Yeah, I definitely couldn't act cool if, I'd, if I'd wanted to. Um, I remember him asking me to trial and we'd been packing up the boat uh, so they'd just been out for sale and you know the boat comes into the dock and I hop on and start taking apart bits and pieces to get it ready to lift out and that's when he decided to ask me and there's plenty of people around at that point um, I remember I went round to the other side of the wing and ended up 
like jumping up and down on the trampoline because I was just that excited. And one of my friends just turned to me and was just like, ah, cool, ah, cool. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's not happening. Okay, so, so you get this amazing opportunity, but of course it's just an opportunity. There's nothing guaranteed at this point. You've been working pretty hard up to it now. So you fly out, you hit the ground. Did you know what you needed to do? Or was it a case of one of those situations where you where you arrive and you think, I'm in over my head? I definitely felt way over my head. Um, I mean, to be honest, I thought I was going out for a week-long trial. Uh, the plan was to do a transatlantic. I thought, you know, going to go out, going to do this. Realistically, they've already got two girls in the team. Hmm. At this point, they had Martin, they had Annemiek. They had a really strong-looking team. They don't need me. Simeon's just, you know, keeping options open, being a nice guy. Whatever happens, this is going to be an awesome experience and a chance to sail like, these epic boats with an incredible group of guys. So just wanted to go out, learn as much as I could. Um, and I think it was kind of that kind of mindset that really helped me because when I got on board, it was just, I just wanted to learn. Um, and that's what everyone kind of was quite happy with was the fact, you know, that I was there asking questions, not pretending I already knew what I was doing, which was ultimately what they were looking for. Um, they didn't want someone that they'd have to kind of get rid of bad habits and coming along acting like a rock star while I was just kind of young, excitable, just wanted knowledge. Um, and yeah, turned out it wasn't a week ended up not leaving for a couple of months. Um, didn't have enough clothes with me, but. <laughs> okay, so so let's let's fast forward then to the point where the race is starting. So, I mean, I can understand, and you, you speak about it and I can hear, you, you can still remember that joy of when all those pieces started to come together as anybody would do when a dream of yours starts to, you know, line up. We get to the start of the race. And of course, anybody that was watching closely with the start of the race will know that for the those first few days just before leg one for Team Axe and Abel, it was it was not smooth. You know, there was obviously some sort of disagreement between Simeon and the managing company. Simeon was uh, taken off the team. He he then gets himself back on and this all happens right at the zero hour. And, and I remember seeing some footage of um, you guys on the boat. And you, you can see everybody's expression as Simeon's obviously discussing the plan and everything else. And you know, I've wanted to ask you this for so long, but obviously Simeon's experience of it will be one thing. For somebody in the, in the team, you've been chasing this dream for so long. You're right there. You are about to hear the start gun go did it did it worry you in a way that you felt like it was slipping away oh definitely i mean it it just all felt so surreal at the time i mean we had literally like crossed the finish line of the prologue when simeon had gone this call saying you know, it it's over um and it was just no one knew what was happening for that week i mean there was the skipper change and Simeon had gone back to Holland to deal with the entire mess. 
Um, and personally, you know, like Simeon was the one who'd brought me into the whole thing. Hmm. Um, I didn't know anyone else in the team when I started. And so, you know, there's kind of that allegiance to him, but at the same time that I want to start, like, this is what I've been chasing after, like, my entire life. It's what I've been dreaming of. Like, I want to be on that start line. And, but you still want it to be with the right people, but you'll do anything to be there. And it's just all of these emotions. And I remember the night before, like, at this point, Simeon had been told, you know, he should be skipper, you know, by the court. But, you know, no one was really sure what was still going on. And even like midnight before the start, we didn't know exactly who Skip the skipper was. And I was just there like, this isn't how I should be spending my night before the biggest day of my life. Like, I was nervous enough to start the race, but to have all of that going on, it was just, are we even going to leave the dock? And then, you know, that next morning that you spoke like, go down we find out that brad yoka and jules are gonna step out for the race or this leg we didn't know at that point and we went down to the boat and we're just sitting there like can we even leave the dock like do we meet the requirements it's like no we need at least two more people to be allowed to start the race yeah um so that was all a bit of a like we'd gone the boat ready to go like that had been you know uh Nikolai was boat captain. He had taken that on where he was like, for now, we just focus on, we make the boat ready. The older guys will sort out who's actually sailing. Um, so the boat was good to go. We just needed the people. And, you know, from some good fortune, at, I mean, we had Roscoe, who is an incredible navigator in his own right, um, stepped up to the plate and took Jules's position. And then we were lucky enough to get Antonio from Scallywag, um, who is a great guy that I'd actually briefly sailed with before as well. So I'm like, okay, at least I know him. Um, and we were able to start, but it was just that moment of what are we doing? We even like, we were joking amongst ourselves as we were kind of motoring out to the start line, like, yeah, you know, if it's not going well, once we get out the straits, we could always just turn right and deliver the boat to Portugal. Like, but, you know, we, we're all far too competitive for that. Um, managed to be the second boat out of the straits. Um, so turned left and kept racing. And, I mean, like, like you say, that, that first leg was, I mean, for so many fans of T-Max and Abel, everything seemed to be, well, if this is how well the boat can perform with one less crew member than you'd planned obviously some of your key players out you know this was this was a good sign for the future did you when you arrived on the dock um after that first leg were you all thinking okay this is you know i've, I've we've got that buzz back we've got that confidence back unfortunately i don't think that buzz came until a little bit later um we like we kind of we'd gone to lisbon which in itself was a bit of a homecoming because we'd spent so long training there. Uh, so at least that was nice. You know, we were back in a familiar place, but we didn't know who else we were going to get in still at this point. Like we'd been offshore for eight days. Simeon had been with us obviously. So hadn't really been able to really be hunting down new crew members. So it was still kind of, we got there. It's like, we've, we've gone here, but we don't have Antonio anymore. 
what what do we do next we still need to fill these positions uh, so there's still that week of uncertainty while we were there um, and it, we then got in uh, Curly Pete and Chris Nicholson to take the two missing spots and Jules came back so it was a uh, that was definitely another rush of momentum, but it was still, uh, okay, here we go again, new faces. Let's see what we can do. And and that, I mean, for the second, the start of the second leg, I mean, I remember it well, it didn't let up, did it? I mean, that was, you were straight out into unbelievable downwind sailing. I mean, some of the footage from that was incredible. Obviously, you've got this undercurrent of, you know, Team Axinabel was one of the first teams to announce. They, you know, you guys had built your own boat. You, you had all this momentum with you. That gets kind of pulled out from underneath and you're sort of struggling to get that one back. Just from a personal point of view, how did you fare in that second leg in particular, where I think things probably got pretty real? I mean, the 65, it's a wet boat. It's a hard boat. It's a tippy boat. You know, how were you doing at that point? It was definitely a learning curve. Um, I mean, that was easy, like the longest I'd ever been offshore. I um, mean, even like one was the longest I'd been offshore at that point. I had no idea how I was going to cope kind of physically, mentally. It was all just unknowns at the beginning. Um, mm. And it was, like you said, it was definitely uh, thrown into the deep end with that start. I mean, it was cool, like blasting out and 30 knots of wind and just sending it. But we didn't have the greatest start um we had managed to lose the j1 bag overboard in the import race so as soon as we got out we're there trying to drop the j1 managed to rip the j1 and then didn't have a bag to put it in so brad luke and i had to kind of like mangle it downstairs through the hatch and then attempt to fold it up so then all of a sudden everything down below is also soaking wet. You've got 30 knots of wind, so everyone's soaking wet. And just downstairs just turned into this humid, just black box. And because the wind didn't drop for days, we still couldn't repair the J1. So it was just kind of that straight into the deep end. Everything that could go wrong at that point did because we just weren't as prepared as we thought we were. I mean, I remember literally leaving Lisbon, standing behind, uh, I think it was Nikolai driving, got hit by a wave, life jacket goes off straight away, like didn't even last five minutes. And it was just because at that point, we hadn't done much sailing in really wet conditions. And I'd seen all the others were just wearing harnesses rather than life jackets. Turns out they go off if you have it on automatic learning curve and then what about what about the lessons that presumably any any of us would need to learn coming off that that incredible adrenaline high of being blasted by 35 knots to the drift the doldrums the weight you know what was that like uh it was definitely testing like before the race i always imagined that the hardest part was going to be the cold you know i grew up on an island I'm used to warm weather. The hard bit is going to be when it's cold and freezing and I can't warm up. And I found the complete opposite. The doldrums were by far the worst part. Just the heat and the drifting and the feeling that you're just not going anywhere. 
like you go down below for four hours and you come up and it's like oh we're we're still here but those guys are still there great and you just you can't cool down either because obviously the boats we don't have fridges or cold drinks nothing so you're there literally like in your bunk just in underwear or thermals just trying not to die from heat stroke and you can't even have a cold drink to kind of help that and your skin doesn't like it your body doesn't like it you feel disgusting you can't shower and it was yeah it's more that mental side of it we just like we're weak in there's nothing that we can do about it i i imagine in those sort of situations as well the everybody's fuses are burnt already quite low everybody's ready to 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 blow about the smallest little thing about you didn't clean that up or that's there or you know you've got my whatever wet was when did you when did you first learn uh the the importance shall we say of not annoying each other or not being annoyed by their little ticks as well um i'd say it was probably like one that i started to pick up on it the most but like two was definitely a test um for me in particular you know i was the rookie on board mm. like i was the youngest by quite a lot oh I, I don't have a gold medal to my name i was the newbie so i, I was chief bailer and snack maker and you know making like martine and i packed the food for each leg so we would get a lot of grief if someone had a meal they didn't like so it was kind of like learning throughout that kind of what makes everyone tick and mm. what's the best way to get people in a good mood for Nikolai Haribo and Simon. Okay. like if you come up on deck with a bag of Haribo they'll be in a good mood for a few hours <laughs> with uh Justin who joined the team later coffee and dark chocolate covered coffee beans it was just like it's normally food related yeah but like those would make the biggest differences to your watch is just if you could keep everyone happy and on the same page then things would go smoothly i mean that that sounds like potentially the most important uh, role on on any boat really um and i'm imagining it only gets more important as the race continues because the next leg was the first time into the southern ocean and i remember talking to you in the team's container in alicante and I remember asking you, how are you feeling about the Southern Ocean? And you turned to me and you said, I'm excited for the Southern Ocean. <laughs> so do you want to revise that now? I remember that conversation. <laughs> and I remembered that conversation multiple times in the Southern Ocean. <laughs> um, and I mean, like part of it's still true. Um, like the sailing down there is incredible. And, you know, there's times when you're surfing down the waves and you're just like, I just, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Like waves that are 10 meters high and just, it is stunning. Mm. Um, but it's also terrifying at the same time. And I think that anyone who doesn't have a little bit of fear in them in the Southern Ocean probably has a few screws loose because it is just so remote, you feel so tiny, and 
you are having the life beaten out of you by the wind and the waves. I mean, just getting knocked off the pedestal repeatedly. It is freezing cold. Like the waves are massive and you are so remote. Like if something goes wrong, no one's coming to help you. It is all on you. Well, you talk about being battered by the waves. And of course, you know, I mean, so you take a tumble and it's a hell of a tumble. You talk us through what happened. Well, it's a bit embarrassing, really, because we'd only just gone on to the watches. Um, it was literally the start of the race. I mean, at this point, we hadn't even made it to the Cape of Good Hope. Um, we'd kind of just started to set up. We decided we were going to go into our watch systems. Martine had gone down below into the bunk. Um, and Luke had asked me to go get another pair of sheets from down below. And I just go downstairs. And at this point, it was pretty rough. Uh, as we left Cape Town um, and like just nasty waves where it's just not comfortable you're getting thrown around a bit um, and you're kind of blasting along uh, reaching so you're healed over at 20 plus degrees so the, everything's already sideways I was pretty nervous to begin the leg because uh, you know going into the southern ocean building it up in my head a bit went downstairs just kind of digging underneath the bunk to get a set of sheets. We went over a big wave and I managed to do a backflip over the engine box down below and landed with a longitudinal across my back, um, which, yeah, it hurt. Um, I've seen the footage from on deck and I was like, yeah, that's a pretty big wave and kind of embarrassing how loud my scream was that you could hear it on deck. And by the time I'd opened my eyes, I already had Brad and Jules standing above me, kind of really. But, but I mean, for those people that haven't been on board a 65, it's surprisingly cathedral-like downstairs. I mean, when you go down the stairs, because I, I remember your fall, and then the next time I was on a 65, I remember thinking, if I was in that bunk and then I fell down there, it's a hell of a drop. Yeah, it's definitely a couple of meters. Um, it's a wide open space. Like there's mm. nothing to stop you. Um, and but damn, like later on in the race, definitely a lot more aware of that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, getting imagine. in and out of the bunks, like moving around the boat, it was definitely a lesson in okay, like it's so easy to get injured. Like just needed to be more aware. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let it slip for a minute. And I definitely regretted that one because, I mean, I was essentially on some pretty strong ibuprofen for the remainder of that leg. Um, Jules had kind of been like, well, you can stay in your bunk if you want, but you're in your bunk. You can't help out. Um, and I was just like, I, I can't be that person. Um, so I kind of just took the drugs, um, had a couple hours kind of what, in the bunk while they kind of decided if it was super serious, um, just to see if there was any like really bad bruising. Uh, it like bruised straight away, so they were kind of worried I might have damaged something. Um, but I kind of got bored after that, so I like, am going on deck for my watch. <laughs> um, and you know, grinding kind of takes your mind off of it a little bit. 
Um, but it definitely put me into this, you know, for those first few days, I was definitely kind of spooked. Um, the way I moved around the boat, I was really slow and just, you know, overly cautious at times. Like, it's always good to clip on, but there was times where I was doing it, I was, this is probably a bit excessive um, and just getting a bit nervous whenever, you know, big waves were coming. Um, so didn't start that leg off to the strongest start personally. Well, I mean, credit to you for staying in the game because it would have taken a lot less. I mean, I wouldn't have been on the boat in the first place. I wouldn't have even gone down there, but there's by the by. So you, you've you already been sort of dealt a healthy, you know, warning for the respect that obviously the Southern Ocean demands from all of us. Um, let's then talk about the other big moment for Team Axanabel on that leg, the jibe. The jibe that results in the main track coming off the mast. Where are you for this jibe? Are you on deck at this point? Are you down below? Kind of talk us into it. Yeah, so I'd actually been on deck um, kind of for that whole watch leading up to the jibe. We'd been approaching the ice gate and the wind had been steadily building. We had one reef in and it started getting kind of high 30s and the school had come in and we're like, we really need to get another reef in here. Um, you know, this is a bit marginal. Um, and so we kind of started preparing to put this reef in, had a bit of trouble getting it in. Can't remember exactly why, but yeah, it wasn't happening. And as we were dealing with that, Jules kind of stuck his head out. as like, we've had a massive shift. We need to jibe or we're crossing the ice gate. I was like, okay, we'll, we'll start setting up. And he wakes everyone up down below. They all come up and we start kind of getting things ready. And then it was a, no, we need to go now. So it's like, okay, we're not putting the reef in. Um, we started to do the stack, um, kind of took off a couple of ratchet straps, sent a couple of sails to the other side, but didn't have time to finish it. And it was like, no, no, jive now. So we set up, I'm on the front pedestal with Simeon, kind of my maneuver spot. And we just start, start, start the maneuver. And it, when it's windy like that, we always go, all of us into, the main uh, on the pedestals, grind the main in, and then after the jibe, deal with the front sail. So it's at the point where, you know, we're starting to steer into the jibe, we start grinding, and then just can't move the handles. Like, it's so loaded up, it's just not budging. It's like one of those, like, you compare it to like when you're in a laser and opti, when you're little, trying to jibe, and you go for it, and you're like, it's not coming and you know in that instant that yeah this is not going to go well um but we went for the jibe and there was a lot of noise and the boat was pinned over on its side just straight away um so kind of had some sails dragging in the water instantly all the battens had broken uh, i think it was the top three had all gone um, and then kind of just looking up, boat pinned on its side, sails just a mess with these because of the broken buttons. And then the track just go boom. And by some miracle stayed attached to the sail at this point. Um, and yeah, it didn't look so great. So we had to you know, sort the runners out, get the boat back upright, drag these sails that were half in the water back on board. And then I was like, okay, Brad Nikolai, up you go. Um, as we, you know, we made the effort to get the sail down and managed to recover the track. 
no longer attached. There's probably a metre and a half, two metre section of track. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and, and putting it back on, I'm just trying to think about how I might go about something like that on a VO65, if I could then come into the dock, get the mast out, drop it down, give it a really good clean, no salt water, no grease, no grime, key it all up, all these sort of steps. And you're thinking, right, we've got to glue this back on in what can only be described as possibly the worst place to have to do it. You know, did, when that happened, every team I'm sure has been dealt one of these moments, but when that happened for your team, was it very quick that everyone went, okay, this is our plan? Or was there a little bit of um, grappling with, with, with the enormity of that? That's, that was the thing. Like, for me, like, up until that point, I'd been kind of like this nervous, kind of like spooked, spooked horse and on the boat. But as soon as like, the issue happened, everyone just kind of stepped it up mm. straight away. Like, it was like a light switch had gone. And it was like, okay, here's a problem. We fixed the problem. Um, and like full credit to Brad and Nikolai, who were the ones who had to go up the mast to, you know, actually glue this thing on. Nico was on the helm for most of it because he's a bloody good helm. <laughs> um, and so kind of Martin, Simeon and I were kind of, you know, managing the pit, you know, helping the guys up who were up the rig and passing things back and forth, just general stuff like that. Jules was making sure we were still going in the right direction. Um, it was all just kind of everyone knew what needed to be done. Um, you just put in that situation where it's like, well, we're here. There's nothing we can do about it uh, other than fix it. Um, so, and luckily, I mean, Southern Ocean, the waves did carry us in the right direction. Could have been a lot worse if we were going upwind. Yeah. And I mean, it's quite remarkable. I remember seeing some of that footage coming in and I mean, it looks tough enough, but I'm sure you can't really convey what it's like being up that mast as it's swinging around. And when you were hoisting the main back onto this track, which you had glued on, ratchet strapped on, I mean, it was almost a textbook how not to glue it on. Don't get it wet. Don't do it in cold weather. You know, all this sort of stuff. When that main was going back on, was there a nervousness? Oh, yeah, it was definitely because the first time we hoisted it, it didn't work. Mm. So kind of we took 24 hours to do kind of the first step. You know, we'd sanded everything back, fixed the battens. Um, and I can't remember what it was we used the first time, Sparbon, stuck it on, left it overnight. Next morning, it's like, okay, let's try it. Hoist the main and literally it didn't get much further than like the head car being on that it just straight off like well that one's not going to work back to scratch like and we knew it was going to be at least another 24 hours before we could send it again so kind of, that was a fairly dark moment when we saw it ping off for the second time um so you know it was there like okay we've got to make it work this time so that following morning again so after kind of 48 hours of this nonsense you know we're there hoisting it and it makes it up and it's like okay well we're gonna put a ratchet strap on just just for some extra security <laughs> it's like okay that seems to have worked i guess we just go um 
and I wouldn't say the guys really held back at all with driving. <laughs> it was it wasn't really a case of oh we we should baby the boat make sure it gets there. It was like, we've got two hundred miles three hundred miles to catch up. Let's let's get a move on. And so you finished that leg. It's a tough leg. Nineteen sailors, by my count, get rotated out um, for various reasons, not least because of everything that you guys have been through. You're one of those sailors. So you've had an injury. You've had a nasty smash. You're now uh, finding yourself not going to do the next legs. Now, you know, most sailors do not want to get benched. How did it come about? Did you, were you aware that, look, this is probably going to happen. I've taken a little bit of a knock. I might need to kind of reassess. Or did you get told when you were on the, when you were on the dock? Yeah, so it was a bit of a weird one. Um, so after I did my back, I also managed to pop my shoulder out a couple of days after that. Dislocated um, it? Yeah, but it w- went back and it was fine. <laughs> fine. It's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it hurt a lot. I was on drugs. I kind of told the guys after a few days, but it, it wasn't really a big deal, but it was enough that I was in pain from that. I was in pain from mm. my back. Um, I was in this general sense of kind of being overwhelmed from the Southern Ocean. Like I was still loving it, um, but at the same time, I was just there. Like, there's definitely something not right here. And I mean, I wanted to do the whole race. I wanted to do that next leg, but there was definitely a voice in the back of my head being like, "You need to recover. Like, you need to sort your back out. You need to get better." But I was ne- at that point. I was still so hungry for the race. I was never going to be the one to make that call. Like. If they needed me to do that next leg, I would have been there. Sure. Um, no matter like what the pain, I just I just wanted to sail. Um, but I think Simeon saw that, and the other guys all kind of saw that there was just that little spark had kind of died out a little bit from kind of being injured. And um, as we were making that final approach to Melbourne, Simeon did kind of take me aside, just sitting on the rail and being like, "Look." I think it's better that you take the next leg off, see a physio, get yourself sorted and come back stronger in Hong Kong. Um, and so I had kind of been expecting it just from kind of like my own personal thoughts, but I was still, I mean, I was crushed. Like yeah. all I wanted was to do the whole race. So to not like kind of felt like I'd failed a little bit and that was pretty crushing. Um, so yeah, I kind of got ashore and pretty heartbroken. Kind of the first person I saw was Bianca Cook from Turn the Tide, who's really good mate. From like hugging her on the dock, just being like, "I'm off to the next leg." Um, but I was kind of like took kind of a couple of days to kind of get a plan together. You know, I was there helping them get the boat ready for the next leg. Um, and then afterwards flew to Sydney, which is where I kind of then based myself, um, just to get myself sorted. I didn't want to fly home and be away from everything. I was just like, you know, I'm going to have a base here. I'm going to go to physio. I'm going to get in the gym and I'm going to come back stronger. And this isn't going to happen again. Um, I then met the team in Hong Kong, um, not knowing at that point whether I was doing the next leg or whether I was short team, um, it was all a bit of an unknown. Um, I'd been replaced by uh, Cecilia Gett, 
who and like the team had done really well um so it was kind of a neither of us knew who was sailing who wasn't she'd been under the impression she was doing more of the race i was under the impression i was doing more of the race um and ultimately it came down to um seeming kind of deciding that you know seal would stay on for another leg and then i'd come back on in brazil and do the rest of it um from there um which was pretty heartbreaking at the time i had kind of gone out with the thought that you know i'll just back into it um so went back to sydney kind of still in contact with the team while they're off sailing um which was quite nice to still have that little help like i was able to talk to martine while she was doing the leg and just go go team <laughs> <laughs> um and just you know went out to still get stronger and um at that point kind of my back was starting to feel a lot better um even when i'd been in hong kong i was still kind of on that edge um and then i got the call being like yeah we need you in auckland um and the team at that point you know they were on fire they just went a leg yeah so like the the atmosphere was strong um and kind of stepped back in in auckland had the week you know getting the boat ready um and yeah i got back in and and like you say i mean the team was doing well i mean they won that leg there was a string of podiums things started to get up let's fast forward then to something that's made sure that team axe and abel is going to be in the history books for a good many years uh to come the 24-hour record so this is on the transatlantic from newport to cardiff and previously there's sort of there's two records that were broken so you've got the one that was by abu Dhabi ocean racing uh with ian walker as the skipper on a 65 you you guys take that then there's the one that was on the volvo 70 i mean a faster boat let's let's say it a faster boat um you guys take that at what point was there ever any discussion on board the boat where somebody said you know i mean we're going quite well here and you know things are lining up quite nicely or was it just a bolt out of the blue it was i mean for me at least it was completely out of the blue um didn't really have much notice of that it was actually happening I mean, <laughs> like when we left newport it was very much uh like straight out of the cage like going for it straight away um i don't know there was just like this little extra spark at the start of that leg we hadn't done very well in that previous leg like coming into newport and everyone was just so hungry to just do well um so we'd kind of gone out full guns blazing um we took kind of the more southerly route rather than going up north into the cold which is quite nice we stayed warm and then the conditions got pretty full-on um and to be honest those few days of sailing was, like really not pleasant <laughs> um, everyone's just like Oh, it must have been so cool and so much fun and just that we were wearing crash helmets when we were on deck like we always like carry a couple of helmets on board in case you have to go up the rig or kind of for the driver in really bad conditions but it's bad enough that everyone on deck was wearing a helmet because just the angle of the waves was kind of coming clear like just in front of the driver so it lines up perfectly with the person on the pedestal, which was quite often my job. Um, I wasn't one of the main drivers on board, 
Um, oh, you were the power. You were the powerhouse. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, so it got to a point where we were just not even being able to stay on the pedestal. Um, and it was decided that you would kind of position yourself behind the driver. And then every time you needed to grind the main on, you'd kind of dash out, grind it on, get back up. Just because you're just getting flattened over and over again. So the last thing we were really thinking about was records. Like we were just trying to send it and stay in one piece at that point. Um, and really beat Brunel um, was because we were so close to them. I think it was something like the entire leg, we were never more than 11 miles away from them. So we could always see them. And yeah, just, just wanted to be Langford and Carlo. Like, just, they've had enough wins. Like, let's get this from them. <laughs> um, so we just, yeah, kept pushing. Um, and then just all of a sudden, like, I think Jules had gotten an email from kind of the race control being like, uh, yeah, so it looks like you're on for, you know, getting the 24-hour record for this leg. Um, then it would be like, oh, yeah. and it wouldn't tell us when Brunel had set the record. Yeah, of course. Because so we, well, you, can't, you can't, you can't. Yeah, no. so at this point, we had no idea. But then later found out, you know, we'd been alternating back and forth who had the speed record. Um, but we were like, okay, cool. That, that's great to know. We'll just keep on sailing. Um, and then... All of a sudden, it just started being like all of these media requests. It's been like, oh, yes, yeah, so it looks like you're going to break the old 65 record, that like you're going to get in Walker's record. It's like, okay, cool. We'll just keep sailing. And then Jules kept getting asked, you know, can he check, you know, the distance he's sailed on the computer, like they wanted the logs. And it's just getting a bit weird, really. And I remember like one watch, Justin joking, it'd been like, oh, well, we could do 600 miles. And I kind of thought it was joking at the time. And then the next watch, it was a case of, yeah, no, media want um, Jules and Chris and Martin on standby for when we break 600 miles. Um, and I was like, okay, um, can, can the wind die now? Because it's <laughs> literally been, it was about 48 hours of just, relentless getting smashed and at that point I was like okay cool this, this is all fantastic but I'd really like to sleep <laughs> because at that point you're just in your bunk headbutting the ceiling like just no sleep food was a nightmare and going to the bathroom was just stress but a very nice thing to walk away from the race with around your neck I mean it was pretty surreal like you got in and they had a banner and it's like Oh, we actually did something. <laughs> right, Brunel might have got the win, but we got the record. I think a nice summary of everything that we've kind of talked about so far is the fact that, um, like I said at the beginning, you have come a long way in a short time frame compared with most. I mean, and it's something that, you know, I'm sure you're proud of. The interesting thing for me is that you get on board the, you know, T-Max and Abel, or you're on board with Jimmy Spithill on board the, the F4. You've done some really cool sailing, and I'm sure you've learned a lot from those people, and you've been the one taking instruction. What you do now with the data analysis and the science, I mean, 
Is it as like I imagine it, where you go into a room and you're talking to some of the best sailors in the world and you're saying, no, look, look, I respect your opinion, but my spreadsheet says you should attack. It's really weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was definitely initiation by fire because I kind of got into this uh, kind of the data analysis side um, only just like a year and a half ago. Um, It was kind of after the Volvo, I was like, okay, what's my next skip, like my side school going to be? Like, I love the naval architecture, but I don't want to be in an office. So I kind of, like Jules had actually proposed it to me. He was like, I think you might be interested in this, like have a look. And it's kind of, yeah, that seems pretty cool. I understand it. Nice way to kind of combine the technical with what I already know and kind of going like forwards. I was like, okay, I'll try and get into sail GP. Like boats that I absolutely love, you know, I'm familiar with it. um, And it would just be so cool to work with them. And then, you know, the first event I just interned, um, I wasn't with any team in particular. And then, you know, Draper offered me a spot with the British team. Okay, this is terrifying, but awesome. And it was just incredible how, because the teams are so small, you are literally just sitting with the sailors and the coach. So it would be myself and coach Joe sitting with sailors and literally just going through numbers and be like, yeah, so... I think you could do this better. <laughs> and for me, that I'm not great at confrontation. Um, and especially when it's so many guys I've got so much respect for as sailors. I mean, I was really lucky with the fact that my first year it was Dylan Stew, um, kind of as helm and flight controller, because they, they were just as eager to learn. Mm. Um, so I could kind of go to Joe and be like, look, I saw this. I think this could be changed. And he would be the one to then kind of use good words um, to explain it to them. But it was still just so surreal just being involved in that. And then that's just taken another skyrocket this year with Ainsley stepping in. Um, So now it's kind of, I sit in, in the debriefs with Ben Ainsley and Paco and Goobs and just like, okay, (laughs) I'm terrified but this is my job. Let's um, see how they take it. And I mean, they're all great at kind of having a lot of respect for kind of what I do and the numbers. And so it is kind of nerve wracking when I present my ideas, but they're also very hungry for more information. Mm. Um, so at least I feel like I'm being useful. <laughs> and will we see you back out on the ocean race at any point? Do you still have that spark that you were talking about before? I'm going crazy in lockdown. <laughs> I, I would love to be back offshore right now. Um, and yeah, there's definitely plans for, you know, trying to get back out there. Um, I did have kind of a full kind of year of sailing plans, which unfortunately, you know, put on hold right now. But yeah, I can't stay away from the water and I'm definitely not the person to stay at a desk all day. So I'll be back out there. Well, that's very good to hear. That's very good to hear. All right. Well, Emily, thank you very much for uh, for talking. It's lovely to speak to you again. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the water soon. Thanks for having me.